This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 34 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, May 31st, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this episode, we chat with Moon Studios art director and story lead, Jeremy Gritton, about his work on Ori and the Will of the Wisps. We'll examine the value of backward compatibility heading into next gen, and look ahead to Xbox Summer Announcements. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I've done many weeks, I must thank my guest from the week before. Last week's guest, CEO of Playful Studios, Paul Bettner, joined us to talk about his career in the gaming industry, dating all the way back to Age of Empires and, and building Xbox Live from that code, to the ill-fated Halo MMO, which was really neat to hear about, working on Halo Wars, and through now to a more bright and cheerful state of uh, creating and evolving the character of Super Lucky, which is bright and cheerful and something I think a lot of us need right now. It was also neat to hear, I mean, the dude created Words with Friends. So to so Paul Bettner, thank you for your time in the gaming industry and for donating your time to come on and, and chat with us on XEP about what it is that, that you've worked on and what you're continuing to work on and bringing to the Xbox platform and to gaming in general. It was, it was great to hear and a bit of good news, I suppose, and something happy that uh, admittedly we need right now. And I will take a brief moment to address the current state of affairs uh, in the United States and in the world and before we get back to gaming. And that is to say that it, it is with a heavy heart that it's hard to have a normal conversation right now. To open my Twitter timeline, which is typically ripe with video game conversations and debates about this game or uh, this technology or what's going on. And to see so many of the protests and the injustices that are taking place as people try to manipulate different situations and and, and take away from the very real injustices that are going on and that need attention and addressing. And I will offer a bit of insight to the advice that I often give my students and I try to remind myself of, and that is all of our struggles are different, but they are very rarely equal. And that comes with uh, when you are not a person of color, recognizing the position of privilege that that might bring you, depending on where you live and your state of being, your state of affairs, how you're treated by law enforcement, how you're treated by the government and educational uh, value, and, and how you're treated in general overall. And if you are in a position of privilege, as I am as a straight white male, recognize that. Recognize that my situation is different. Recognize that your situation is different. And do your absolute best to speak to equality to defend those who might be being mistreated, and to recognize that in a position of privilege, you also have a position of responsibility to work towards those equal uh, rights and those equal attitudes wherever and whenever they may be, and address injustices as you're able. I often talk to my students about that. You know, if you have a position of privilege, work to better those around you and work to better and defend those who might need it. And if you're not in a position of privilege, be it a identity, 
representation, identification, whether it's a matter of, of skin tone or color, being a person of color. Uh, recognize that your struggle might be different and uh, look to those whom you may trust. Fight for equality as you're able. Uh, I can only offer my love, my sympathies, my empathy, and whatever I, I can do to help in, in those respects when I see it. Uh, but my heart is out to anyone who is having to work towards and fight some of those struggles uh, that are going on well outside of the game reverse and far more prevalent to, to what it is we deal with. It's a difficult topic to talk about, guys. And uh, I, 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 I hope I can say more as time goes on in the, in the right states of mind. Uh, but for now, I return to video games, and uh, quite a bit of news in the Gamerverse did come out in this past week. Uh, we had a, some cool stuff happening with Xbox Games with Gold, Game Pass, and xCloud. No Man's Sky is announced to be coming to Game Pass this June, sometime in June, and I'm excited to see that. I had initially thought No Man's Sky had made its way to Game Pass at one point, but I believe I was mistaken there. That game has come through such an evolution from its initial launch uh, exclusively on the PlayStation 4 and essentially bombing there to going through so many updates to add all different types of things like mechs and different flight capabilities, different types of crafting and building of uh, areas and structures. It's really impressive to see the journey that Hello Games has taken No Man's Sky on. And I'm really glad to say that it's going to be coming into Game Pass because more people will be able to put their eyes on it. I think it has a, as a wonderful place in the Gamerverse in terms of, of history and evolution from an ill-fated launch all the way to where it is now and to where it's going. That's a really great story to follow and, and a fun story to unpack overall. I think Game Pass will bring more eyes onto it, which is already getting plenty of praise uh, throughout the media over the past few years since it has gone through such a restructuring. Uh, but it also, I think, gives hope to those of us who might have been looking towards a game of a, a live service. I mean, I'm thinking of Anthem in my mind because I love the flying and combat in Anthem. But it, it certainly was was rough. And if Hello Games can bring No Man's Sky back from the brink of damnation all the way to where it is now, that offers, I think, hope for those of us who really like elements of, of live service games at the moment. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more people get eyes and hands on this. I hope that story continues uh, to make people happy. And, hey, I mean, cool, good get for, for Game Pass, that's for sure. In that same vein, Games with Gold and xCloud added a host of titles. xCloud, of course, added uh, the exclusive Ori and the Will of the Wisps onto its Android platform, and I am so ecstatic for that because, of course, later in this episode, we're talking with the art and story director, Jeremy Glitton, who, or Jeremy Gritton, pardon me, who really breaks down thematic ideas of Ori and the Will of the Wisps. And I must say, I, after that interview, I went back and I 100%ed Will of the Wisps. I think it's just a glorious uh, platformer, Metroidvania, if you want to use that term, uh, Castleroid, if you want to use the other one. But uh, I really love Ori and the Will of the Wisps. And if you've not played it, please take advantage of whatever platform you're able, be it Game Pass, be it xCloud, PC. Go try Ori and the Will of the Wisps. It's a beautiful display of storytelling. If it's too hard, drop the difficulty down and have a blast with it. Uh, xCloud also added Batman Arkham Knight, which is my favorite game of the generation. Not best, but my absolute favorite game of this generation. Mortal Kombat X, a competent fighter. Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham and Pillars of Eternity. And it really speaks to xCloud's versatility that they're adding games of so many types that are based on Twitch reactions and intricacies and time involved. Something like Pillars of Eternity, you got to be sitting there watching that screen for a good while to make any real headway. Arkham Knight, you got to be listening in and hearing great audio to understand a lot of the story that's going on. And for them to continue bringing bringing games to xCloud at a time where many people might not have a box but want to be taking advantage of it. That's really exciting and great to see. Continue piloting that technology as we march towards Series X, uh, especially with the struggles of Stadia, but the proof of concept and technology. 
I'm all for xCloud getting more. I really hope that Mac users are able to get more of that. Uh, I say Mac users, goodness, that's how detached I am from, from that ecosystem because I'm an Android person. But I hope my friends on iPhone are able to get more than just the Master Chief collection because as wonderful as it is, one of the things that we tend to celebrate in gaming is versatility uh, and being able to try lots of different things. And, and as great as it is, it, you need more stuff over there. So hopefully that gets worked out. But yeah, great additions to Project xCloud. And uh, let me know if you're still using xCloud because I'm not right now. I mean, I'm at home almost 24-7. And so I'm just using my console, my Switch, my PS4, whatever, I, my, my Xbox. I'm using everything to play my games. And so I don't need to use my phone by being out and, or, or anything like that. So let me know if you're still using xCloud. Uh, the last addition in kind of the service updates, I suppose, for uh, the Xbox ecosystem is that Games with Gold were announced for June, and I actually was rather pleased with this lineup, though the internet uh, seemingly disagreed here. Shantae and the Pirate's Curse was added for Xbox One in early June, and I really must say, WayForward does a great job with the Shantae games. I talked a moment ago about Metroidvanias with Ori, and the Shantae games are great uh, testaments to that same culture of, and that same wonderful genre of gaming. If you've not played a Shantae game, take advantage of this Games with Gold and, and check it out. It's a wonderful platform it's beautiful the art design is stunning it's eclectic in its own right uh, but I really like what WayForward has done with the Shantae games and I'm all for uh, having more people put eyes on to it uh, give that one a go later on in the month though Coffee Talk is coming to Xbox One now this is a visual novel that takes place in kind of a fantastical Seattle uh, not really my jam whatsoever. I have no interest in coffee talk, but again, we talk about versatility and diversity in games to go from a, a really neat platformer to something like coffee talk might get some more eyes on there. Neat. Uh, the Xbox 360 title that will be accessed early in June is Destroy All Humans. That's a that's not an Xbox 360. It was an original Xbox game, but then available on Backcompat on Xbox 360. And a wonderful prelude to the remake that's coming in a few months. So that's kind of neat to get an OG Xbox game. And then lastly, Cinemora is coming in the in the latter half. Cinemora, I believe, is a shoot 'em up. Uh, it's it's a top-down shoot 'em up I believe. Not really my type of jam, but I'm told it's of quality. So I would say this Games with Gold was decent, not bad whatsoever. I do tire of the constant comparisons to PlayStation Plus, and at the same time, I completely understand them. PlayStation Plus having a banger of a month with, uh, I believe it's Battlefront 2 and Call of Duty World War 2. Those are gr two great shooters. And gotta say, it, it's tough to measure Games with Gold now. I argued several episodes back that Games with Gold needed to go. And I still stand by that. In the same vein, I mean, I'm a I use Game Pass Ultimate, so these are all service updates. So I see Will of the Wisps and Arkham going into XCloud. I see No Man's Sky on Game Pass. I see Shantae coming to Games with Gold. And to me, it's all just one big lump of information because I'm like, all right, these are games I can play now if I so choose to take advantage of it. And I think that's the value of Game Pass Ultimate and something that Microsoft needs to do a better job of in messaging as they launch next gen. Uh, and we talk a lot about messaging on this show, and I'm going to get to that actually in a bit uh, as we discuss the PlayStation 5 announcement. Hello, Two Forks Tower. This is Sissy Jones, voice of Delilah from Firewatch, and you are listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Uh, also, um, you didn't really name the turtle Shelly, did you? In mentioning that PlayStation 5 announcement, we are getting a news event from Sony on June 4th. So depending on the time you've listened to it, it may have already happened. Uh, but we're going to get the big PS5 reveal and find out a lot about what it is that Sony is bringing to the table in an online event for next gen. I, 
Uh, a lot of people speculating that we'll see the box for the first time. A lot of people uh, noting that we're going to see more first-party games to date thus far. We've really seen the, the Lumen demo that they put out with Unreal 5 that'll work on uh, or rather, Unreal 5 will work on all consoles, but that, that demo specifically with Unreal Engine 5 was coded spe to specific to a PlayStation 5. We've, we've seen a lot of states of play on The Last of Us 2 and on Ghost of Tsushima to really round out and cap off Sony's PlayStation 4 generation. But this will be our first look into what Sony is bringing to the table to compete with the Xbox Series X moving into next gen. And it brings up a lot of questions. What are they going to do as far as box? Are they going to give us the price? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, are they going to show us specific stuff. They talked a lot about back compat. Back compat really a point of contention amongst gamers at the moment. We had uh, Jim Ryan coming out saying pretty clearly that Sony is focused with their PlayStation 5 on bringing new experiences that are specific to that hardware and not truly focused on bringing old generations with them along the way, meaning their focus is on new experiences, not old ones. And this runs counter largely to what Microsoft has been creating as a narrative in bringing their libraries with them from, from their, the Xbox 360 and then of course the OG games that you might have redeemed in that category all the way through to now, meaning if you buy it on an Xbox platform via smart delivery and back compat, they're going to let that travel with you throughout. And then in the first year or so of, of Xbox Series X games, a lot of them will be backward compatible uh, with Xbox One, and, and there'll be transitional titles, meaning a Halo Infinite, of course, Xbox One, and Series X. And these two narratives run counter, and really and truly, as painful as the phrase both sides is right is to say right now, I really recognize that there is a value in both arguments. Nintendo does something very well. When they launch a system, they talk about what it is that's special about that system and why you need to have it and have your games on it. They've done that with every single one of their systems, uh, starting with the Wii up through to now, and they do a good job with it. Sony seems to do a, a I would argue, a mixed result job on that. They had back compat with the PS3, PS2, full back compat with PS1 by way of hardware, uh, PS3 with, with some some of the units had hardware, and then PS4, not at all. Some of them had cross-play uh, or cross-buy, meaning they made multiple versions for it. It's, it's really interesting to see how they're approaching it. And Microsoft working very hard through the launch of 2013's Xbox One to the 2015 announcement, and then moving up through now to work on emulation software to bring their games with them. And there's there's value in every single one of those strategies. And it's hard to say which one's gonna pay off most. Uh, to my way of thinking, I, I flip back and forth. I First of all, I am 100% on board with the, my library travels with me. That is a buying decision for me. When I buy Series X, I am personally very pleased to know that I'm not losing any games with me. I can put my Series X up on a shelf and not worry about, or I'm sorry, my Xbox One X up on a shelf and not worry about it uh, and just play all my games on a Series X. That's exciting for me. That does motivate me to stick with the ecosystem. On the other hand, there's something special about, oh, I can only have this experience here. And I think that needs to be the marketing that Microsoft takes as they approach the Series X launch. Just like with Breath of the Wild, you could have played that game over on a Wii U, but they marketed that as a Switch game. They need to do the same thing with Halo Infinite. And that brings me to a question from Mr. Boomstick XL, who uh, hosts a wonderful podcast, which I often get to be a part of, called the Xbox Factor Podcast. Mr. Boomstick says, How much pressure is on 343 Industries to deliver a perfectly developed Halo Infinite? 
Great question, Boom. And, uh, man, all the pressure is on 343. They've got to deliver a reason for people to buy that Series X. And Microsoft needs to market that as such. It's got to be a God of War moment. At the moment, one of the things I'm doing over the summer is catching up on backlog games from other systems that I might not have, have dove, dived into. Dove and dived. I always do this. And I've been playing through God of War for the first time. And that game is an absolute masterpiece of a title and reimagining of a character. And really and truly, Halo Infinite needs to be an equivalent to that for the Microsoft brand and give us a reason to buy into the Series X. Have it available on Xbox One. That is absolutely fine. But take a page from Nintendo's platform, from Nintendo's playbook, and market it as a Series X title. Market it as a Series X. This is special here. This is why you need it here. This is why you pick up this box. You get to play the latest and greatest. So all the pressure... All the pressure is on 343 right now, and uh, I, I think I've changed my narrative. I was like, oh, some, hey, you don't buy it for one system. But over time, the more and more I, I kind of postulate on this idea, all the pressure is on 343. They need a God of War moment. They need a reason for people to buy into Series X, uh, and they're it. And Microsoft needs to market it well and as such. So, uh, man, glad I'm not them. Glad I just get to enjoy the games and play them wherever and on whatever system they come to. But, uh, yikes, I do not want to be I do not want to be uh, in those meeting and boardrooms and, and working with those developers because all the pressure is on them. Back to this PlayStation 5 event on June 4th with the backward compatibility narrative and what that means. We had a lot of people write in. I put out a Twitter poll actually asking specifically, does back compat sell systems? And we had 515 responses on that one, which was, was fantastic. And of course, you can weigh in on Twitter anytime and, and find me on Twitter at InsipidGhost. So of the 515 responses, 80% of the responses said that yes, back compat sells a system. Whereas, of course, 20% said no. And this absolutely blew my mind because never in, in my anecdotal observations of the industry have I seen backward compatibility as a system seller. I've seen it as a wonderful perk to having a system. I've seen it as a reason to maintain an, in an ecosystem. But to bring in people to buy a system for back compat never really stood out as a reason for me. And I would argue that it's not going to sell Xbox Series X's despite this poll, which of course is set into an echo chamber. I recognize that as the host of the Xbox expansion pass, people might invest in my social media for, for that specific reason. And I, and I see that value there. Uh, but I also look at the PlayStation narrative of they've got back and pat, but they don't have back and pat. And people are, you know, arguing and butting heads there. Uh, if anecdotally in my Twitter poll, people are saying, yeah, they're buying it because of, of back compat. Fantastic. Super cool. I know that's a huge selling point for me personally, but I do not think that's going to move the needle on Xbox Series X. I do not see families going to the store or, or buying it online and Xbox Series X because they can still play my old games. I think that's a great perk. I think it will absolutely keep people there, but I don't. I just don't know that that's going to be a, a marketable truly move the needle narrative i hope it is because i use back compat all the time but i i've often thought of myself as an outlier in that if i use back compat constantly I, I often hear people say old games old and so that narrative will be one to play out for sure but in that same back compat idea microsoft put out a wonderful article on the X xbox wire about their backward compatibility program a lot of the stuff was known, but they offered cool insight. Of course, we know anything that works on your Xbox One is going to work on your Series X. Cool. 
the Back and Pat team has put over 100,000 hours combined into testing titles, and by the time Series X launches, it'll be over 200,000 hours into testing Back and Pat. Cool. Really neat. Hope I get some of my, my stuff that's buried in, in the, the Xbox 360 or original Xbox days that's stuck by licensing. And they actually addressed that. They said some of the challenges are simply put, it's legalities and licensing there. So, so buried in this article was dope news as well. Older games are going to run better. Now, that's not a neat narrative. I'm like, oh, cool, old games run better on new hardware. That sounds standard. But what's dope about a lot of this is older games that weren't using HDR will now have it due to a lot of that velocity architecture. And I'm going to read you a quote very briefly from the article to give you a bit more insight. Quote, Xbox Series X delivers new, innovative HDR reconstruction technique, which enables the platform to automatically add HDR support to games. As this technique is handled by the platform itself, it allows us to enable HDR with zero impact on the game's performance, and we can apply it to Xbox 360 and original Xbox titles developed almost 20 years ago, well before the existence of HDR. End quote. That's dope. Not only did they address in this article that we would be getting faster load times on old stuff, expected but still nice to hear. We'd be getting better performance, expected, still nice to hear. Better visuals, expected but nice to hear. And we've seen evidence of that with Xbox 360 enhanced for X, for the Xbox One X. Goodness gracious, it's wonderful to see that the Series X is taking on that same idea and moving that tech forward. But also adding things like HDR to your old games. This, again, speaks to the legacy approach of having back and pat. And I... I don't think it sells systems uh, on a big scale, but it's super exciting, and I, I am so in on that idea, and I'm very curious to see if I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong because, man, a healthy healthy combative market is, is only good for us as gamers, and I, I am so all in on that. Element Pio, a wonderful community member, wrote in this week with a couple questions regarding that same Sony event. He says, Okay, Sony is doing an online event next week. Will all the games Sony reveals be multi-platform? I'm going to answer that one very quickly. No, they will have one or two exclusives, uh, of course. I think that's uh, par for the course. And when you've got a, a slate like Sony does that is ripe with wonderful IP, you need to have console-specific stuff there. But a lot of what you see will be multi-platform, will work on an Xbox Series X. And that's good news. I mean, hey, I'm all for it. People look tuned into the inside Xbox to see multi-platform stuff that they could play on their PlayStation 5. We'll do the same thing, look for stuff that we can play on our Series Xs, uh, and so forth. Next question from Element Appeal. Can we expect next-gen visuals that are a step beyond? Uh, yes, you certainly can. I think the Lumen demo showed that. To the same respect, we always get the best that a console has to offer at the end of its life cycle. And power very rarely seems to matter in this in when art design is so favorable. You look at the Xbox One X and the best visuals that it has to offer in Element Appeal. Maybe you look at a uh, Gears 5. I mean, the, the visuals in Gears 5 are just stunning. And you compare that to, say, God of War, and God of War looks pretty darn good next to the more powerful One X, the newer Gears 5. And it's a pretty impressive comparison because art design makes a, 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 a big impact on this. And that'll come down largely to the studios needing to deliver on an, a platform that's exclusive and on third-party studios to showcase some of the power that's going on there. Uh, so I think you will see next-gen visuals and could be pleased with them. Uh, I think they're going to – Sony's working hard to give you a reason to buy a PlayStation 5 and upgrade, whereas Microsoft's doing the kind of smart delivery approach of marketing there. But, yeah, you'll see some new visuals for sure. Great questions, man, and thank you for, for writing in on that one. That's, uh, that's awesome stuff. 
Let's see. Let's ta- let's tackle a few more questions before we get to our interview uh, with Jeremy Gritton. Ian Glenn writes in: Can an MMO RPG made by Xbox Game Studios be a good idea for the Xbox platform? The Bard's Tale MMO similar to Elder Scrolls Online. Ian, great question. I don't think it really matters. I think they've got a lot of live service games as it is. Sea of Thieves is very MMO-like. They recently just put out an update that will add dailies uh, into there, and dailies are very MMO-esque. They're adding in checkpoints into the, to a lot of their stuff, so you can do story missions, you can do just multiplayer missions. I don't think Xbox Game Studios needs an MMORPG made by them and their resources. They've got Fantasy Star Online that's exclusive console-wise to them. Uh, I don't think they need to take advantage of that and put their resources into it. Uh, as much as it, it looks like you're interested in the Bard's Tale, I would I would love for that to happen for you. I just don't I don't see that happening there. Uh, let's look at here. Our last question for this week comes from Bill Coniglio, and he says, Did you finish up Minecraft Dungeons? I was really surprised how the difficulty ramps way up on subsequent playthroughs and makes in, makes excessive level grinding mandatory. Not sure the demographic for this game will care for that. Man, uh, so Bill, I have it's it's hard to I have not beaten the campaign because I'm on the last level and I keep dying. To your point of needing to grind because the difficulty goes up, yeah, it sure does, and it it is something I talked about in my review in that the game is very approachable and it's very easy to lower the difficulty. Like it's just two button presses uh, per level to lower your difficulty down to something that's easily manageable, and I just I'm too stubborn to do that. Uh, right now the level grinding speaks to the diablo like nature of minecraft dungeons and there's a depth there that i talked about that is i think well beyond what people will initially see and i think that's a good thing offer approachability so that your parents and kids can dive in and be like oh this is neat i understand the gameplay and then for those who are interested you get on that loot grind i'm loving minecraft dungeons right now i talked earlier in the show of course um Real hard to stay positive lately, real tough. Uh, coronavirus is like a back thought to me. I'm not even bothered by that anymore. It's more like, oh, what's going on to uh, my fellow human beings right now? It's really weighing heavy. So Dungeons has actually been a wonderful bright spot for me when I don't want to play a, like a heavy war type game. I've loved it. Uh, so I'm seeing a lot of that depth. I'm on the loot grind. I'm loving the grind. But it, I, I see what you're saying with that difficulty. It does get hard. Some of the things in the later levels also get very creative with some of the bounce pads and, and the maneuvering and platforming. I dig all that. I think more of it needs to happen in the DLC, and the DLC is coming in July, they've announced. So as far as the audience caring for it, I don't think it's actually a problem. I think it's a good thing. It gives a legs to the game that it might not otherwise have. And it's 20 bucks, so the entry point is so easy. It's on every platform. What I really want is cool unique armor that is specific to characters we love i want the master chief i want mario i want kratos there's there's armor in there that looks a lot like kratos and i need to snap a picture of it but maybe get some marvel characters in there get a little batman-esque character or tribute to nods to them there's there's outfits in there that are so cool i want i want levels that that showcase that my favorite thing about sea of thieves and forza and uh, so many of our games within the Xbox ecosystem is they cross-pollinate. You can go and see if Thieves and have Ori sails or Ori uh, ship masts, and you can see these, this stuff happening. In Gears of War, you've got some of the Halo characters. You know, when, when you play Forza, you can play on a Halo level. Like, that stuff's really neat to me, and I would like to see more of them lean into that, including in Minecraft Dungeons. They've done it in Minecraft proper. They've got Mario content. They've got Halo content. I want that happening in dungeons as well you know that's what i want and dungeons could evolve into 
Perhaps not a live service game, because I think there's a stigma with that. And Microsoft is known for that, to their detriment and their success. But evolving and bringing levels forward. We know they're working on crossplay, full crossplay. Awesome, awesome. The moment they get full crossplay, my wife doesn't get a choice. I'm downloading it on her Animal Crossing machine. Uh, and, and we're going to play Minecraft Dungeons because she's all about that Switch right now. So I, I'm all for that going forward. Oh, man, guys, I have talked nonstop, but it's been so nice to just dish and talk video games with you guys. I hope you're enjoying the shows. And if I could implore upon you, if you are an iTunes user, would you go drop a review for me? That would mean the world. Go drop a review and share it. I'm at 23, 24 reviews right now. I'd love to get to 25. That would be a wonderful, cool little thing. We've got an interview this week with Jeremy Gritton, art and director and story lead of Moon Studios. I've also already recorded the interview with Tatiana Delgado, the director for the upcoming Series X game, Call of the Sea. And I'm super excited to share that with you into next week's episode. So look forward to that. It's been so fun. Again, I know I talked about it. It's, this is not meant to be a full interview show. It's meant to be me hanging out with you guys offering insight but it's kind of become an interview show by accident because we've all got time on our hands and uh, people are available so cheers to that cheers to having more people come on the show i'm looking forward to more developers i'm reaching out to some people if you've got people you want to connect me with and goodness can i can i ask another small favor of you guys if you have a favorite episode or favorite guest or interview you really enjoyed let me know you know, we, Edward Rowe of Red Blue Games from, was our Sparklight interview way, way, way back, way back, back in November. And since then, we've talked to so many wonderful people. If there's a favorite, just message that to me. You can email me, insipidghost at gmail.com. You can, of course, reach out to me on Twitter, at insipidghost. And let me know, because those make my day every single time. And, and I absolutely love it. And to my last point, my favorite people, I want to say a thank you to, to an Xbox Live user who reached out to me uh, on Xbox Live. His name was Ian. Ian, I don't want to share your full gamer tag or name without you, but he reached out and just said, hey, I listened to your show. You're awesome. And he sent me an Xbox Live message. That is so cool. Captain Logan's done that on Twitter. Thank you guys for that. That makes my day. And at a time where I need good news uh, and you need good news, those are great things to put out into there. All right, I've babbled enough. Thank you for being here this week. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your week. For now, I send you to Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead of Moon Studios, to discuss his time working on Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Enjoy. All righty, we are very fortunate now to welcome Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead of Moon Studios here to talk about Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Jeremy, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much, man. It's my pleasure. Well, we've got you here to talk about Ori and the many uh, emotional turns that you put us through in Will of the Wisps. But before we do that, you have a pretty cool career in the gaming industry. You were not initially at Moon Studios during Ori and the Blind Forest. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's correct. I uh, originally, well, not originally, my, my career spanned about 15 years in the game industry. But before Moon Studios, I was at Blizzard Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I was working in their cinematics department. So I had started, I joined them just before StarCraft II was announced. And mm -hmm. I worked on the full trilogy, which was about, I think, just under nine years uh, there. And so right as we were wrapping up the, uh, the final expansion, which was Legacy of the Void, by that point I was the in-game cinematic lead. Mm -hmm. So I'd had some experience um, managing a small group of artists and doing some of that production work myself um, and doing getting a little bit of a taste of directing but 
I knew that for my career, the next step that I wanted to get into was doing direction. Mm-hmm. And having played Ori in the Blind Forest, which I loved, I thought it was just a fantastic game. Uh, and I loved the art style and the story in the game. When I had the opportunity to join Moon and to work on the sequel, which was going to be Will of the Wisps, uh, I jumped at it because it was a perfect opportunity um, and also just the perfect time in my career because we were just wrapping up this this really long stretch of working on the the full StarCraft II trilogy. And so you you make the jump over to Moon Studios. Talk to me about the transition from working at uh, seemingly on the outside a, a really big enterprise like Blizzard to going into a, a smaller team. I would say, I mean, if my understanding is that Moon has about 80, 80 or so employees uh, on a distributed platform. Talk to me yeah. about the difference between the two there. Um, well, it's quite a bit different, uh, especially when I first joined because the team was much smaller. So this was several years ago. I think when I joined, we we probably had less than 15 people. Wow. Although I don't, yeah, I don't really remember because uh, it was a little while ago. But it was a it was a big difference um, because Blizzard has, you know, thousands of employees, and mm-hmm. we had an entire campus and everything, so it's all on site. Uh, so coming to Moon, working with a much smaller team, it was my first time working uh, on a small team, and also my first time working from home. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, you know, that that was a big difference there. And then also the other big thing about Moon is that we're distributed all across the globe, especially now with 80 people. I mean, you have people in all sorts of countries and different time zones. So that was also a little bit of an adjustment because a lot of people that I was working with, especially initially, uh, they were in Europe. So they were about six hours ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there was some, uh, some adjustment to get used to that. And then the other aspect of working with a smaller studio uh, you do have more of an opportunity to wear different hats and to contribute in different ways. Mm-hmm. So when I was at Blizzard, it was a very, uh, you know, almost like an assembly line. Mm-hmm. So you have a very specific role that you that you do. Uh, and for me, uh, when I started there, I was a modeler and texture artist. So that's essentially what I did. And my role expanded a little bit as I moved up to becoming a lead because I started managing people a little bit more, as I said. And um, you know, keeping people uh, uh, working towards the same goals, et cetera. But for the most part, I just worked on that one specific aspect and I was aware of everything else that was going on on the team. And I, I knew all of the different parts of production and how things were assembled, but I didn't uh, actively contribute to them. So coming to Moon and being at a much, much smaller team, I was able to take on a bigger role, um, you know, partially even just because of necessity, because you you have to have that wider knowledge and, and uh, a wider amount of input into what's being built um, just because the team is so much smaller. And to be in a distributed platform and having people all over the globe, you, I would imagine, had to take advantage of a number of different tools simply to communicate. And is this done, mm-hmm. like in my mind, is this done via Slack, Discord? I mean, how are you, are you sending things across OneDrive or Google Drive? Like, how do you guys work together in a communicative sense? Yeah, we, uh, we, Mostly use Skype. Uh, we also use Microsoft Teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we also use uh, Google Drive as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have, uh, we have a number of tools that we use. We also have bug reporting tools, et cetera, for tracking all of the tasks and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Dropbox. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of different uh, tools that are at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a, a, a silly but perhaps very relevant question and all that. 
Are there language barriers? I mean, my understanding is that being all over the globe, some of them are not native English speakers, whereas you might be, or you're not native to speaking Austrian or German or, or whatnot. Does that present any logistical challenges? You know, surprisingly, it really doesn't. Um, everyone on the team has excellent English. I'm mm -hmm. amazed uh, because I'm not bilingual. So mm -hmm. to meet all these people that are at the very least bilingual, um, it's it's really impressive. It's incredible. But yeah, everyone, there's no issues communicating. Uh, I mean, some people, you know, if they happen to be from the same country and they speak the same language, obviously they can, they can discuss things uh, on a separate call mm -hmm. uh, in their native language. But in all of the team calls and so on, uh, everything's in English. That's that's just so cool. I find what Moon Studios has been able to accomplish with Or in the Blind Forest and Will of the Wisps to be a brilliant example for a distributed model to be successful. And I would imagine that given all of the, the, the COVID pandemics and people working from home, in many ways, you guys have become a model to look to for other studios to perhaps employ different techniques. Has anyone come to you to say, hey, how are you guys accomplishing this or that? I do remember our creative director, Thomas, telling us that there was a studio that contacted him to ask uh, for some advice mm -hmm. because we have experience working uh, from home and working in a distributed fashion. I can't remember which studio it was that, that spoke with him, mm -hmm. but, uh, but he was reached out to um, because I think some people know that we, we have experience in that regard, which has been you know, a silver lining for us um, in the light of uh, you know, everything going on with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, which has been so unfortunate for everyone. But for us, it really hasn't impacted work too much. Uh, we've been able to continue the way that we have been. Interesting. I, I that, that model is just, it, it seems wonderfully progressive in some ways and also uh, a bit scary, I would imagine, to go from such that big blizzard enterprise into uh, the way that Moon was operating. Now, you enter into Will of the Wisps development or towards the towards the end of Blind Forest. Talk to me about where Will of the Wisps was in the pipeline when you entered as a lead to Moon Studios. Uh, it hadn't officially started. Moon was wrapping up the definitive edition. So mm -hmm. I came on board and I was doing some playtesting for the definitive edition and uh, also reporting some bugs just to help out as, as things were getting wrapped up there. And then uh, on the side of that, I was already beginning, before everyone officially rolled on to Will of the Wisps, I was already starting to uh, make little documents of notes and do some little sketches of ideas and things on the side. So I was probably one of the first people that started actively working on the title. Being an art lead and a story lead, how do you go about approaching a new game and crafting a new story? Do you look at what's been accomplished in Blind Forest and what it is, the, the way the story beats that ended? And we should say, feel free to go ahead and share spoilers about both Blind Forest and Will of the Wisps and any listener. Uh, hold off a bit if you don't want to hear those. But how do you go about creating a new story, particularly, and many of our listeners wrote in to ask, how do you do that in a storytelling capacity where there's very little spoken dialogue? Well, there's several, <laughs> there's several things about it. Um, the first one that I should mention is that uh, Thomas, our creative director, he told me right before I joined, as we were just discussing the job, about what the planned ending for the game was going to be. So we already knew from the very beginning what that very last shot would be right before the credits. And so a big part of the challenge was figuring out, okay, we're going to start at point A, what will be the storyline that will carry us all the way through that and then to get to point B? Um, mm -hmm. As far as 
visually. I think that there's a lot of... Uh, usually what you want to do is just create a series of moments. So mm -hmm. a lot of times for me, when I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm imagining the emotion behind the moment. And then I'm also just imagining just visually what sequences can be. So one of the, one of the first sequences that I worked on and that I pitched was this idea in the prologue that we would have this seasonal montage and that we would have the camera flowing across Swallow's Nest and that we would show all of these different moments of all of the characters. Mm -hmm. And, that was something that I knew that basically there was a problem that we had to solve, which was we're bringing in a lot of characters very early. It's a little more uh, complicated than Blind Forest was, where they just focused on two. Mm -hmm. We knew that we were going to have four, and that for a lot of people coming into the game, it might be their first time playing an Ori game, so they're not even familiar with Ori and Naru uh, or Gumo. So it's four brand new characters, and what we needed to do was to establish those four characters and establish the relationships that they have with one another in a very short amount of time and that we had to really hammer in the idea that this is a family that cares for one another uh, and that there's a strong family bond so that you can believe in that and buy into that moving forward throughout the story and to do a time lapse and to show all of these different happy moments early in the game that was just sort of that was the solution to be able to do that rapidly so then we can get into the rest of the story. Um, so a lot of times there are these uh, these issues or problems that you see and you're always trying to find what's the most economical solution in terms of the timing and the editing and then the visual imagery. Mm -hmm. But the goal for that was really to create this sense of happiness and nostalgia because as you know, like there's a lot of heavier beats and heavy emotional beats later in the game and we wanted to make sure that we provided that contrast so that you can kind of you can feel that happiness and that joy and then that way if, you know if things get taken away it, it hurts a little bit more because you know what what was there before um mm -hmm. so i don't know if that fully answered the question but uh i hope that gives some some insight into it it's it certainly does i often have used ori in the blind forest and then more recently very quickly uh Will of the Wisps to in my classroom rather to teach nonverbal storytelling by way of body language and art mm -hmm. design and thematic uh, approaches and it seems to me that that particularly in that seasonal montage where you're establishing family uh, lighting and color and what it is they're doing to interact as a family showcases their emotions for one another uh, how many structural beats do you go through and say that this is right for for naru this is right for ori to do in this particular moment to show uh an emotional connection without having them speak to one another you mean how do you find ways to do it just visually without without the uh dialogue yeah sure yeah um I mean, it's it's always something that you sometimes you have to iterate on it a few times to to find the different little things that you can use to communicate ideas. Um, but one of the ideas there was we wanted to show Ku's growth um, mm -hmm. and as she was developing into an individual. So you will even see uh, over the course of the sequencing there uh, very early, um, we show her just learning how to walk. And, and then this later Ku is we the show owl. Her Yes, yeah, who is the baby owl? Yeah, for anyone who isn't familiar. So then later we show her getting encouraged to, uh, you know, kind of attempt to fly or to take a little jump down from, they have this uh, balcony on top of their cave. And so Gumo kind of prompts her to, hey, take a little jump down to Naru and she catches her. So we're showing a little bit of that 
development from going from just learning how to walk to then beginning to learn what it would take to fly. And then we also show a little bit later that then there's that this moment where we wanted to show her kind of developing her independence. So the family eats berries. And then at some point, you know, maybe she's been eating berry paste or something like that as a, as a baby. And then at some point she realizes, well, you know, this isn't really what I want. And so she's turning her nose up to it. And then you show them helping her find food that she is interested in. And then we see her again. She's she's watching birds flying in the sky as spring re is returning to Swallow's Nest. And that's giving her this idea to, I want to fly. And then we show that she's unable to because of her damaged wing, et cetera. So everything, every moment is very key because we, we always have something that we want to say with, mm -hmm. with each one and that we're trying to build on each one that came previously. Um, another thing that's actually interesting about the way the prologue is structured is that we used uh, left-right direction to also uh, imply um, the theme. So when the characters are going from, or the, or the camera is traveling from right to left, that, that has a theme of returning to home or returning to what you know. So at the beginning of the game, Ori goes from right to left and is returning back to their, their home in Swallow's Nest. When we leave the cave and we have the entire seasonal montage, the camera is flowing from left to right and everything's going forward in time and, and Ku is developing as an individual. When Ori sits with Ku at the docks, and then has the idea to, uh, you know, finding a way to help her, he goes back again to the left because he's going back to the past, looking for a keepsake of, of days gone by, which is Kuro's feather, and then back again to the right as he's bringing that item back to her as something that, hey, this can bring us forward uh, mm -hmm. and solve our issue. And then when Gumo helps strap the feather on uh, so that Ku is able to fly, again, they take off the cliff to the right, and then the, the flight um, is much more right dominant. So that, that was just another way that we tried to work in, uh, I guess, like a sense of visual logic through direction. That, that is a brilliant note that I don't think occurred to me in, in my multiple playthroughs of that prologue. And that prologue, uh, in addition to the, the thematic approaches, you, you almost play a dirty trick on, on us in that we are identifying and learning these mechanics of flight, and then we have that emotional tearing away of returning to be just with Ori. Is this a conscious effort to tie in gameplay development uh, along with an emotional connection as you go? Yeah, I think that, I mean, we definitely wanted to have some of those gameplay moments. You're always trying to figure out, especially in the prologue, because there's a lot of story that we have to tell. Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out how do you balance that between story moments that you're watching and, and moments where you can actually actively play mm -hmm. uh, because you want to strike that, right balance. And that was probably one of the things that took the most iteration for us with the prologue was just finding out how do we work in the actual gameplay. And mm -hmm. what we found was bringing the feather into that and showing that there was this opportunity for tandem gameplay and mm -hmm. being able to actually control coup that not only would that tease something that you would get to play later, which is good, but also just the sheer fact that you're able to control that character coup that that should give you a little bit of an extra attachment to her. And it's it's mainly that we only have a very short amount of time in the prologue to help get, get the player attached to that character since so much of it is about trying to find her in the first act of the game, mm -hmm. that allowing you to actively control her, that, that kind of um, amplifies that bond that you'll have with the character. And then that way, when we take her away, um, you'll be that much more inclined to try to find her. 
it's funny. I actively avoided certain side quests because I felt a connection to that character. And uh, story beat wise, I, I felt it was, you know, imperative that I, I find her as quickly as possible. And only later would I return to do some things. And uh, it, it I think it speaks to a story narrative uh, over gameplay in a certain respect. Did you find in playtesting that certain players prioritize certain things based on some of those narrative beats that you'd written? Um, you will always find people who they just like to go and explore everything right away. Mm -hmm. And they want to cover every inch of ground um, and get every optional piece of content. Uh, and then you will have other players who are probably more like yourself and they're much more motivated by the main story thread and they want to achieve you know the, those primary goals i'm i'm probably more like you where mm -hmm. when i play a game I'm, I'm much more invested in the story and i'm pushing forward that way uh because i have certain objectives that i want to achieve and then only later i'll go back but i mean it was just a split and it just depends on what people like to play and you know and that's great people can play it the way that they like the best mm -hmm. how do you guys go about balancing difficulties in that respect because i would argue that ori uh, for all its gorgeous narrative storytelling and, and environmental storytelling, it's a rather difficult game. How do you go about balancing the difficulty uh, settings for, for Will of the Wisps? How much was informed by uh, player feedback from Blind Forest? And then wanting to tell the, the tale and that elation of being successful when you accomplish a platforming feat or a defeating an enemy. How do you balance difficulty in that? I think for difficulty, it's a, it's a little hard for me to give you a great answer because I'm not on the design team, but I do know that we have a variety of players uh, on the team in terms of um, skill level. So mm -hmm. we're able to see how things work for an advanced player, intermediary, and, and a beginner level player. So that gives us an idea of how things are, are balancing out. Mm -hmm. um, as far as providing an, a reward when you complete uh, an important gameplay sequence, uh, that's something that on story we always think about. And mm -hmm. so if you complete a really big escape, we want to make sure that you have something rewarding uh, there that gives you that sense of accomplishment. And that was something that even towards the end of production, we found that, uh, that it was an issue um, mm -hmm. where we had some sequences where it would finish and then you didn't really get that full sense of reward. So we were going in and uh, and I was building out little animatics to show, okay, well, actually, if you complete the sequence, then maybe we can make this feel a little more rewarding for the player by making these few changes. And it's something that we can squeeze into the production schedule. So pacing-wise, that's something that you always want to have is is uh, that reward at the end of an accomplishment. I, I love those little animatics where I feel that Ori does accomplish something and then you see him... Uh, kind of do a little hop or or spin around or something like that. It seems mm -hmm. to offer uh, something again that that extra bit of reward. And I argued in my review that uh, Will the Wisps is on par with some of the best non-narrative storytelling and visual storytelling with Pixar. And Blake wrote in on Twitter and said that the design when that when does when you design an environment, do the little attentions to detail like crafting certain areas or those little animations uh, do those get added in later? Is that something you're consciously thinking about early on? I think we're thinking about it throughout the process. I mean, we know obviously on, on early on it's more high level and mm -hmm. we're just trying to decide what, what is this location and how can we, how can we distinguish it from other areas? What can we do for it in terms of color palette? What can we do for it in terms of shape language and so on? Um, just to try to give it its, its own unique vibe as a biome. 
-hmm. but while we're doing that, we're also trying to just develop all of the little details. And a lot of the way that the, um, the scenes are assembled is through uh, a series of assets. So we have sort of this library of assets and, and they're painted at quite a high detail level. And then we're, we're mostly figuring out, okay, how do we combine these? And then also, is there anything that we can, that we can do additionally to add environmental storytelling on top? Because that's one of the things that really, I think, helps sell the environments and make them feel like a lived in space is when mm -hmm. you travel around them and you can find these little unique elements that give you a sense that it's not just a generic forest, but some creatures live here and maybe they have their huts or, you know, all of these different things that you can, you can build in there just to give a sense of lore and history to the world. That lore and history was certainly expanded on in Will of the Wisps versus Blind Forest by way of those new characters that were introduced. A lot of supporting characters and famous Seamus wrote in uh, asking, you know, how do you balance that that introduction of a new story but still maintaining a focus on Ori and uh, as you introduce these is it is it difficult to keep the storytelling beats as you go it's challenging having a wider array of characters absolutely mm -hmm. um, blind forest had a much smaller cast I think blind forest really only had four to five major characters and then for us we probably had I don't know, maybe up to 25 characters, something like that. So it was a lot and you really have to balance that out. And, and sometimes you have to make decisions as far as which characters are going to get more screen time and which are going to get more depth relative to other characters. You, you have to break them down into tiers mm -hmm. um, because it, it would be impossible for you to go as in depth for every NPC that you meet mm -hmm. um, compared to uh, a character arc for someone like Quillock, who is a very important character in the game. Mm -hmm. So we're always having to make those conscious decisions um, because you want to provide the player with the opportunity to, to learn more about different characters and to go down these little side avenues. But at the same time, you don't want to clutter everything too much. You, you do want to keep the focus more to the main storyline and more to the major players in that story. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly a challenge, but I think that it's one that we were able to, uh, to juggle. Did you have a favorite NPC that stood out My, to you? Yeah, my favorite NPC was Quolock, um, just because I find him to be a very wholesome character, and I really like the idea of this mentor character for Ori. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I also, I thought that his ending sequence, um, where he imparts to Ori that he would, he would, he's asking Ori to please look after the Moki for him, and that's a very selfless thought that he has uh, in his last moments. And so I, I find that very endearing, and so. He was probably one of my favorites. Also, he had a great character design and great voice. So he uh, he was a really fun one, I thought. And, and in a lot of really key um, emotional scenes as well. Were there any unique inspirations for Quolock that stood out to you uh, as you guys were creating him? Hmm. I wouldn't say that there was anything in particular. I just remember that we had this notion that we would have a giant swamp toad and that he would be sort of a mentor to Ori um, and that eventually he would become corrupted and that we would have to battle him. And everybody just liked the idea in general. And then uh, our character concept artist, he just did this um, concept for Quolock. Uh, and I think it was almost, it was probably the very first one that he did or maybe just the second one. He, he just knocked it out of the park right away. And so everybody was just totally on board once we saw the, uh, the concept painting. 
it was funny for me because we did battle people like Quolock or, or corrupted uh, entities throughout, you know, the entire game. But the primary villain I don't think was as obvious uh, initially as maybe it was in the Blind Forest. And I think that did a lot for, for storytelling. When you guys are crafting enemies uh, or crafting uh, villains or antagonists to Ori's quest, uh, how do you go about deciding what's what or what's going to be your main focus or a side character? What What's the what's the mentality in building a villain? Well, that was also another challenge because we knew that, unlike Blind Forest, that Will of the Wisps was going to have multiple boss fights. Mm-hmm. And so that's already something in and of itself to tackle because you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sense of this, that Ori's having these big boss fights and does this work with the character and the story? Um, and so you'll see that there usually is some kind of uh, twist involved with each of those big villains that you fight. Um, mm-hmm. And for us, we had categorized them as the, the main, main bosses were more of the spider, um, Quolock when he becomes corrupted, uh, and Shriek at the end of the game. And so for each of them, they have layers. So with Mora, when you defeat her, it's not like she's just defeated and she was a bad spider and that's all. We actually learned that she was corrupted and that through defeating her, you were able to free her from that corruption. And so you actually gain someone as an NPC. And then Quolock was meant to be the inverse of that, where you have this character who is an NPC and becomes corrupted and that you're forced into battle with him. Uh, and unfortunately, through that, you lose this ally that you had early in the game. So they're, they're really like an inversion of the two of them. Um, and so that's meant to be that, uh, you know, with one you defeat, but you you saved her ultimately through doing that. And the other one you defeat and you lose someone that you care about. So there's a um, a conflicted feeling there to go along with that. And then with Shriek, again, I think because we really wanted to play up her backstory. Um, and oh, yeah. Even though, I did yeah. not hate Shriek. I didn't hate Shriek. I was heartbroken fighting Shriek knowing what Shriek had gone through. Yeah. And I think that's I think that was one of the goals was that we we didn't want it to just be this two-dimensional just villain and that you just want to defeat them and that's it but there is a layer of complexity there emotionally and you even see it because we we've watched streams of players uh, after the game was released and you can see a lot of people even the ones who get really wrapped up in the fight when they defeat shriek once we go into the epilogue and you see her final scene um it really hits a lot of people hard because mm-hmm. at the same time even though she's done a lot of terrible things they can you know, they can understand her backstory and, and kind of see where she was coming from, even though it doesn't really forgive it, but you can understand it on a certain level. So I think that finding ways to have those boss fights, but also create some emotional conflict, I think there, mm-hmm. uh, upon the completion of them, that was important to us. And that was trying to stay true to, you know, to the ideas and themes of, of Ori and the Blind Forest. Something we've not talked about, but I think is hugely important in in what you guys created is sound and music. And Mm -hmm. as a story and art lead, I would imagine you work rather intricately in crafting moments that use sound or music that crescendo or crash or offer solemn reflection. Talk to me about the sound and music design for Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Well, it was amazing to get to work with Gareth Coker on our story sequences. So he's just, he's absolutely brilliant. And he gets a lot of inspiration from the visuals that we're able to provide to him. So the more that we're able to give him, um, 
he just gets that much more out of it. And uh, I remember specifically there was this one sequence that I worked on with him, and it was for uh, Shriek's backstory. And mm -hmm. so we had boarded it out and built the animatic and everything. And so I, I sent him the first cut of it uh, because he was getting ready to write the music for it. And he had a few small requests for things where he said, hey, you know, um, I really like where this is going. Can you extend this shot by an extra second or can you shorten this other shot by a second? And that will help me for the music. And so I said, sure. Yeah. Anything that you need to write the best music that, that you can absolutely will change it. So we made a few of those changes based on his request and sent him back the, uh, an updated cut. And he was like, yeah, this is great. I have a lot of ideas for this. And this was a while ago, so I don't want to say that it was the next day, but it was so fast. It felt like it was the next day. He sent me a cutback that had the music. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, here's a first pass on the music. What do you think? And it was amazing. And I was just so blown away that he was able to write that so quickly. Um, and a lot of times you'll have these sequences where you think, yeah, this is cool. This looks like it'll work. And then when you hear it with the music, it just elevates it so much. So yeah, we were just so fortunate to have Gareth, and um, I just loved working with him on the project. Well, that begs the question, Jeremy. How often do you, is it typically build the level? Is it, it sounds like it's story, then build the level, and then sound comes in later. Do they ever intermix or change the flow of creation there? I think with the cinematics, there's definitely a back and forth because mm -hmm. we're we're kind of we're providing stuff to gareth and then he's writing music and then we're figuring out what kind of works with the timing and i know that's something that he really appreciates because uh you know in a lot of situations for composers they're just given something and told hey just write the music for this mm -hmm. uh, but with us we really tried to have that flexibility to say whatever you need if you see an opportunity for something and you know he can hear the music in his head before any of us know what it's going to be so if he sees an opportunity for something, then we'll definitely make adjustments to allow him to do what, what he needs to do. Um, when it comes to the actual game scenes, I think that's much more so we provide the visuals, we provide everything, and that's done up front. And then the sound and the music comes in more based on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but for story, there's a lot more bouncing back and forth, which works well for us. We have one or two more listener questions, but before we get to them, if you'll forgive the, the cliche questions here, tell me the most difficult thing about creating Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Wow, the most difficult thing. I think the thing that's tricky when you work with a sequel is that you're trying to navigate a fine line because people have a preconceived notion of what the game should be based on their experience with with the first game mm -hmm. so you're not coming into it with a blank slate where you can just present it's just whatever it is and and someone will accept it they have sort of in their head what it's supposed to be and you don't want to make it too similar where it will feel like some kind of paint by numbers approach mm -hmm. uh, where people will think you just made a rehash of exactly the same thing but you also don't want to veer too far off because then people will say that it didn't stay true to the original and it, it doesn't feel enough like that experience that they had the first time. And I think when people come into a sequel, they're really looking to relive that experience of a game that they loved uh, again, like being able to play it for the first time again. And you can only do that by falling right into that sweet spot of it's 
it's familiar enough that it feels like the original game, but it's fresh enough that it feels new. Um, and sometimes that's a that's a tricky balance to strike. And there's a lot of uh, different things that different techniques that we have to use to try to find ways to uh, to accomplish that. Did you feel any added pressure because you guys are a console exclusive or, or or any of that? Did you feel like there are more eyes on you for that reason or less eyes on you for being, you know, like this is an exclusive on Xbox? And that's certainly a narrative that gamers talk up a lot more. Is there is there an extra pressure there? For me, there wasn't an extra pressure associated with that. I would say probably all the pressure was just, hey, this was my kind of directorial debut. So I was doing a lot of these things for the first time and uh, trying to figure it out as I go. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably more so where the pressure was coming from. I, I think also just maybe there was a little bit more pressure just because people knew Ori in the Blind Forest and it was very well received. Mm -hmm. So instead of just being something that came out of nowhere, there was a lot more expectation. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot more hype around the game. So mm -hmm. there was, you know, a, a little additional pressure to deliver on that. Um, but I think the whole team was really excited about it. And, you know, uh, and I think that we were able to pull it off. I think you did pull it off. And I noticed uh, this is an, an interesting thing in the pre-release version for reviewers. Uh, and then the kind of day one patch hit, a lot of the art seemed changed. What was the mentality behind that? Just like color palettes and, and things of that nature. How did that go uh, come about? You mean changes between pre-release and final? Yeah, y yes. I when I was reviewing the game, and then uh, the patch mm -hmm. came out. There were there were like full color palette swaps in certain areas that I thought changed the tone of certain scenes. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. But but why one version to the next so quickly? Seemingly, I say quickly on our end. Uh, you know, why go through something like that? Or what was the mentality there? I guess I'm. I'm trying to imagine which part that you're speaking of specifically that had changed drastically from pre-release to release. I know that we had, there was some stuff that was done like much, much earlier mm -hmm. uh, for physical. Um, mm -hmm. And we did make some palette changes uh, from that point on. But mm -hmm. I think after the physical, we stayed pretty close um, and moving into the patches and stuff, we, prep, we kept it pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. but, um, but sometimes it's just, you know, you're trying to find the right color palette for the right environment. And, you know, maybe you've been kind of sticking with one thing and then you realize that, okay, maybe maybe there is an alternate that would be better. Sure. Uh, and we're always trying to find ways to just distinguish between the different biomes and then even just the sub-thematics within those biomes um, to help just help the player get a better sense of space within an environment. So, um, you know, whether you're near the top or the bottom of the environment, just through the assets that we use and how we shift the colors hopefully that will even without pulling up the map the player will get a sense for where they are in the world mm -hmm. well let's go to a few uh listener questions kevin wrote in and asked uh how much does the critical reception of of a game uh, impact the team's mentality or or vibe or the feelings like you, when you guys see reviews uh and then maybe compare that to i suppose and i'm adding on here compare that to say fan reviews or, or what uh gamers and players are thinking how much does that weigh into the mentality of uh game creators i think it's very rewarding um when you see that your work is being well received or appreciated because all of us poured a lot of you know our hearts and effort into it uh for years Mm -hmm. And you have to really keep quiet about it, you know, so you're working on stuff and you can't share it for a very mm -hmm. long time. 
except for trade shows when we would do trailers and that was always a rewarding thing as well because we would release a trailer and then you would get to read the feedback or or watch reaction videos to it and it's very motivating and energizing for the team when we would have those signposts along the way for development so mm -hmm. it, it, it's a big boost in morale when we would release a trailer and it was well received um, and then especially at the end of the game just to get all of that all of that great feedback um, from reviewers as well as fans. I mean, it's really appreciated. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of developers on the team who get a lot of enjoyment out of watching that stuff and me as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we completely appreciate all of the positive feedback from the fans. That's great to hear. And one of the things that Blake, who wrote in, said that he said, thank you so much for the dang beautiful artwork. He found it stunning. And so that's that's a, probably a cool vibe. Uh, yeah, Brendan thank you, Blake. <laughs> I should just mention, by the way, that uh, our art team is absolutely incredible. We have unbelievable concept artists on the team, and they did such a fantastic job. Uh, and I can never say thank you to them enough for everything that they did for Ori to make it so beautiful. So just a quick shout out to the art team. Absolutely. And you can shout out whoever you like because uh, what you guys crafted was, was amazing. Brendan Myers wrote in and he says, uh, as a game creator, do you feel that your game can't get the max attention by being an exclusive on one console? And uh, did bringing Blind Forest to the Switch, did that bring you guys results that you wanted as a studio? And what's the hardest part of being an art director? So he, he packed a lot into that. Uh, oh, wow. Tackle any of those that you're, you're interested in there. Um, well, I mean, I think obviously we love to get our work out to as many people as possible. So um, when the opportunity came up to get Blind Forest on the Switch, I think it was a great thing uh, because it introduced a new audience to the Ori universe. Mm -hmm. And so that's fantastic. Uh, as far as the hardest thing about being an art director, um, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's several, but I would say just the management side of it and just being able to keep track of everything on on a high level and the bigger and bigger that the team becomes and especially for us the team was growing a lot towards the end and the art team really grew quite a bit uh and i and i was involved with beyond just the artists i was also involved with the 3d artists and the effects artists and the animators and so on so it starts to become a lot of different balls to juggle and to keep in the air Mm -hmm. So I would say that that's, that's probably the trickiest thing because any, any one thing, uh, if you focus on it, you can make sure that it's exactly as you want. But when there's a lot of things happening at the same time, there's a lot of prioritization that's, uh, that comes into play in terms of how much that you can focus and attention on, you know, your attention to detail on each thing. And there's a certain standard that you want to attain, of course. But it's just about how you balance that in terms of the schedule for yourself and other people's schedules and how you manage those resources, et cetera. Um, and then lastly, the other thing that I think is always tricky, we had this both in art and story, but sometimes you're working on something and or, or you have people working on something and it's not quite coming together the way that you had hoped. Mm -hmm. And there's always this balance that you have to strike between understanding is the problem with the idea fundamentally, like conceptually there's an issue, or mm -hmm. is it just an execution issue? Because if it's just execution, maybe all we have to do is just iterate and you mm -hmm. just need to do one, two, three, four, five iterations, whatever it's gonna take and, and you'll get there and it will work. And there's many times that, that that's what happens, but there are other times where it's just conceptually there's a problem and you can keep trying to iterate on something and it keeps not working 
And the only way that it will work is if you finally take a step back and say, no, this isn't going to work this way. We have to pivot. And then the solution is actually something different. So is it hard to there's take a lot of judgment back? calls? Yeah, it's it's just it's a lot of judgment calls to be able to say that, because when do you when do you make that change and say, OK, actually, I thought this was going to work, but it's not going to work. We need to step back and try something else. Mm -hmm. And so there's that those kind of decisions happen all the time. And it, I mean, it's not just for art and story. I'm sure that design and, and other departments have the same thing. But I experienced that firsthand many times. And, you know, you just really have to trust your gut on that and uh, and hopefully make the right choice. That's, that's awesome. Uh, one or two final things. Did Game Pass influence, uh, or rather, let me rephrase that. Uh, the game launched day and date into Game Pass. Did you guys see a lot of exposure because of that? Um, I'm not really as well versed on everything involving Game Pass. So I, I think that it did help with exposure mm -hmm. because I, I think a lot of people did pick up the game and check it out because of Game Pass, but I'm actually not as, as familiar on that side of things. Sure. No problem. No problem. And uh, I suppose in my last one, and I suppose you maybe already touched on this a bit, but Famous Seamus uh, noted that both Ori's have incredible stories and touching moments throughout the games without any dialogue. Uh, were there any messages along the way that you you didn't get to parlay or things that you wanted to do with the non-spoken storytelling that uh, didn't quite make it in? Oh, you mean any any story moments that didn't that didn't end up in the game? Yeah, Seamus is pointing out that you they don't talk to one another in nearly the mm -hmm. same way. And we talked about that at the beginning of the interview. And now I'm I'm piggybacking. Were there moments that you wanted to showcase or put between the characters to maybe send an emotion that didn't quite make the cut? I think we pretty much got everything in that we wanted to have. Um, our animation team really did such a great job. We have just amazing animators, so they really deserve a ton of credit for how they were able to sell those emotions through the body language of the characters. Uh, but yeah, we really we have to lean on the animation. We lean on the art with the color palette and the editing and the music and sound. And you know, those are all the components that we really rely on. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything that we didn't really get to do. I know that we did kick around for a while, potentially having a second cutscene that would show more of Shriek's backstory mm -hmm. and show more of that transition from her at the end of the backstory that we do show, showing from there to how she became uh, what she is in the present. Um, but for pacing uh, purposes and also scheduling purposes, that, that ended up being something that was cut. Um, and that could have been interesting to explore, even though we didn't we didn't really develop that. That was something that we had earmarked as a possibility. Um, but as far as the actual moments in the scenes that we had, I think that we were able to get everything in that that we wanted to have. Well, that is that is fantastic, uh, Jeremy. Thank you so much for for joining me today, art director and story lead for Moon Studios. Uh, feel free to let people know uh, where they can find more of your work or anything that you guys that you potentially want to tease coming up or just in general. Uh, I must say, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, just one more time, huge thank you to the fans. We really appreciate you guys. Uh, thank you for all the love that you have for the world and characters that we created. It really means so much to us.